The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. Um, anyways, welcome to the Inn. Glad you could uh, make it out tonight. I am one of the lucky few that did get a burger dog out there. So, uh, yeah, I feel pretty special. Um, one problem with burger dogs is kind of like, feel like I need some gum or mouthwash or something like that. I feel like it's going to come through on the microphone. Um, anyways, I'm excited because today, first sunny day of summer, first official day of summer. Absolutely. If you're a Northwesterner, you got to love it when it starts getting sunny out. Uh, personally, I love it. I was born and raised in the Northwest. I'm a product of Bellingham, Washington. Anyone here from Bellingham? Whatcom County? The 360? Oh, man, it's a rough crowd tonight. We may not go anywhere. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Bellingham myself. I actually grew up, I was thinking about this the other day. I grew up, and I thought that I was one of the biggest troublemakers ever, especially when I got into middle school, kind of the troublemaking era. And it wasn't that, like, getting to high school and, you know, like, crash your parents' car or, uh, you know, some of the real horrible things, but I thought I was this big troublemaker because I used to sneak out of the house all the time in middle school. And actually, they're all things that I look back on now and I go, these were the lamest things ever. <laughs> I was the worst criminal possible. My friends used to spend the night at my house. We had this big house uh, growing up, and it was four stories, uh, attic in the top, but my parents lived in the third story, and me and my brother lived in the basement. So all, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, anyway, all my friends used to stay the night, and all the time, it'd be like 11 o'clock, and we'd be sneaking out, and then we'd get out of the house, we'd be so pumped, we'd be out on the street, and we'd be like, now, what should we do? And we never had a plan at all. And this is about the time we go to the store and buy water balloons and fill them up and throw them at cars or houses. And it was the lamest stuff ever. Honestly, we used to do a thing. I don't know if anybody ever did this growing up called canning cars. You'd take pop cans and you would tie a string between them and you would stretch the string across the road and then cars like this high and cars would drive by and it would get caught and then the cans would drag behind the car. And it would happen, and we'd be like, yes, that car got him. You know, we thought, oh, my gosh, we're going to go to jail, you know. But, um, but the funny thing was I, was thought, I thought I was such a criminal. My mom had no clue. My parents didn't know what was going on. And uh, so one time we were uh, out at my buddy Casey's house, same thing, and we're like, dude, let's sneak out. So it was like at 10 o'clock. We start going out. We're down the road, and his mom comes out calling. And she's like, hey, guys, come back inside. I don't want you out late. And I was making fun of him. Like, dude, you can't sneak out like me. we got to learn the ways of the world. Well, it, it turns out that my mom called his mom and was like, hey, just so you know, Mike and his friends are sneaking out all the time these days, and so they're probably going to sneak out of your house too. And that was honestly one of the saddest days of my life. I realized I'm not the criminal I once thought I was. But what also, what I was thinking about is, I mean, I'm 27 years old, and since then, like half my life, my mom has yet to confront me once on that issue. Never once has she told me one thing about the fact that I snuck out. All she ever did was call my friend's mom. And could be a couple reasons. Could be that she just knew that what I was doing was so pointless that there was no point in even talking to me. <laughs> but it could have been, sometimes I think, what if she really thought that I was doing something bad and she just didn't want to talk to me about it. She was nervous to talk to me about it because she probably had this image in her head of her perfect son and she didn't want that image ruined. If we were to talk and I'd be like, yeah, mom, I'm out. Uh, drugs, alcohol, 
all that kind of stuff. And then her image of me would be ruined. And so uh, maybe, I don't know, but maybe she just chose not to ask, not to talk about it, because uh, she didn't really want to know what the truth was. And uh, who knows for sure. But that is the idea that we're looking at in this series uh, that we're calling the point of no return. And it's this idea that there's truth, these conversations that Jesus has with folks in the Bible and certain truths are presented and we get the opportunity to either accept that truth and live into that the same way that these people that are in the stories get the opportunity uh, to, to accept that truth in their life or they get the opportunity to turn back into what they were living before. We talked about last week how it's, it's like a walking out of a dark room into a bright light. That you walk out and your eyes are used to the dark, so the first instinct you have is to walk back inside that room where you can see and it's comfortable. Uh, But if you stay there, if you stay out in the light, if you stay in these truths that Jesus presents, we'll know the truth. And that truth will then set us free. And the truth that we are going to be looking at tonight uh, comes from a conversation with with a man that actually hears truth and he decides he's going to walk away. He decides that he can't handle it. It's too much because it means that he has to change the entire way that he lives his life. And I think that's the same for us. Sometimes we're presented with certain truths that that are this little minor adjustment that we go, yeah, I think I could make that. I think I could do that. And then sometimes there are things that radically change the way that we view God, that we view relationships, that we view life. And and in order to, to really live into that truth, it means changing the way that we live. And my encouragement as we take a look at this text tonight uh, is, is to look at what this might teach us about who God is. What ways it may change the way that we view God and what we know to be true about Him. And in response to that, how do we live our lives differently knowing that to be true? Let me pray for us. We're going to dive right into the text here. God, oh God, we know you're here. God present in this room. I pray that this truth that you have for us tonight comes front and center. God, in our life and in the next few minutes here, Lord, that we would, uh, we would be witnesses um, to who you are, God, and the truth that you present us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, the scripture we're going to look at tonight uh, comes from Mark chapter 10. And, uh, oh, that was upside down. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 17 is where we start out in the text. Uh, in my Bible, is titled, uh, The Rich Young Man. I'm not sure what it's titled in your Bible. Uh, but jumping right in, in verse 17, it says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the word that, uh, that is used here for good uh, teacher actually means that the guy thought he was a good man. Not necessarily that he thought his teaching skills were good, but he was just a good person, a good man who also happened to be a teacher. He looked at Jesus and saw somebody who, who had God's favor, someone who may have had this secret to eternal life. And he goes on with this question because my guess is that this man, it's not the first time that he's asked this question. He has a question burning inside of him, and and he's probably asked a few people, and and he may have heard some different responses about what this key to eternal life may be. But still, when he lays in bed at night, something is wrong. There's a lack of peace somewhere here, and so he comes to Jesus going, Jesus, what is it? What can I do? Tell me the secret to eternal life. And Jesus, knowing our hearts, uh, looks at this man and doesn't answer the question right away. 
Uh, but instead says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. And then he goes on and he says, no, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And at this point, I imagine the boy's getting a little bit frustrated with this situation. I mean, here he's like, uh, yeah, 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 I know. I know all these things. In fact, I have been good my whole life. You're good. I'm good, too. I've been keeping the commandments. I never do anything wrong, Jesus. Uh, I know all those things. But, but there's got to be something more because there's still not this peace in my life. And then, and this is my favorite part of the text right here, uh, is, is that Jesus uh, looks at him and he knows his heart. He knows uh, that this guy is, is torn. He knows actually this boy is going to walk away from him. And yet I love it right here in verse 21. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And this is the key verse, I think, uh, for us to understand. When we understand this about Jesus, I think it changes everything. When we comprehend that we have a, a God that, that knows our hearts, that knows that, that we're divided at times in life, that knows that we're not always going to pick him. And so desperately wants us to, but even when we don't, he doesn't condemn us. He doesn't hate us. But rather, he looks at us and loves us. Anyways, back to the text here. Um, okay, so verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he says this. He goes, one thing you lack. And at this point, I got to believe the boy kind of gets his spirits back up and he's getting pretty excited. You know, he's probably got his iPhone out. He's ready to take notes on it. He's like ready to text everybody he knows. OK, this is going to be great. Here comes the secret. Here comes the 11th commandment. Here comes the, the way that eternal life is going to happen for me. And now go slow, Jesus. I want to make sure that I that I write all this down. And uh, and Jesus starts talking. He goes, OK, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have. And give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. He's probably like, okay, Jesus, and wh- wait, what? Go sell everything you have. Wait, 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 wait. That's that's not what I'm looking for. That's not really what I want to do. I don't really want to change the way I live. I don't want to leave uh, the life that I've I've started to become accustomed to. I just want the secret. To eternal life. I just want this one little thing that I can do, and all of a sudden, eternal life will come to me. And what we see in this moment is this man's true colors come out. We see where the real motivation is. Because like a lot of us sometimes, uh, this boy does not desire a relationship with Jesus, but rather he wants to leverage that relationship to get out of it what he wants. A lot of us do this. I'm sure you have people in your life that you have, have leveraged that relationship. Maybe you didn't always want it, but they had something and you really wanted it. I don't know if growing up you had friends that like lived on a lake or you know had a pool table or ping pong or something awesome. And you're like, dude, I'm just going to keep being their friends. They may be really annoying, but they have something that I really like. Uh, in fact, in sales, a lot of times people will... Um, you know, uh, act a certain way in a relationship just to be able to sell something. In fact, brought an example tonight of uh, of an opportunity a couple guys have to um, not just be in a relationship, but actually leverage a relationship to get out of it what they want. 
Maybe. <laughs> um, this is kind of an example of what we're looking at here. Well, maybe some people are better than others uh, at uh, getting into those relationships. But, but just an example of a couple guys that are trying to get in a relationship, not because they actually uh, want to be in that relationship, but because there's something that, uh, that somebody else has to offer. And that's exactly what this young man is thinking as he comes up to Jesus, is what is it that you have to offer me? And what he's looking for is eternal life. So when he's presented with the opportunity to change his entire lifestyle, it's, it's a little different than, than we may think, than we may hope for here. In fact, the story wraps up. It's a pretty tough ending here. In verse 22, it says, At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, the interesting thing here is, is when we read this story, we look at the question presented to Jesus about eternal life, and, and we hear Jesus' response. And when we hear that response, it, it's kind of surprising. In fact, I don't even know if it's the right answer. I mean, if you came up to me after the end and you said, hey, Mike, what must I do to get eternal life, I don't think I would say, go sell everything and give to the poor and then go follow Jesus. I don't, I don't think I would say that. I probably wouldn't give you something to, to go out and do like that. In fact, last week when we took a look at where salvation comes from, it has nothing to do with anything that we do, uh, but about accepting the gift of, of grace and forgiveness that Jesus offers. And so we look at this and go, is that even the right answer? Well, in this case, it is. Because what this guy wants is to be in control. He wants the secret to eternal life, which in his mind is a destination, which in his mind is getting to heaven. But Jesus has something totally different in mind. Because when Jesus came down here, he didn't come with the intention of bringing us on 11th commandment. He didn't come down here with the intention of giving us something to do. But rather, Jesus came to reveal the heart of God, to help us understand God more. And what he wants us to understand more than anything is that eternal life is not about a destination, but rather about a relationship. A relationship so filled with love. And he asked this guy, I want you to come follow me and I want you to experience what this relationship looks like. I want you to experience what eternal life looks like in this relationship. In fact, in, in John chapter 17, Jesus uh, uh, makes it quite clear what eternal life looks like. And he says here in, in John uh, verse 17, Chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus is praying to God and he says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That they may know you. That they may discover relationships. See, eternal life is about a relationship. And Jesus invites this man to leave his life of wealth and come get into relationship. The same way that Jesus invites Matthew to leave the tax collector's booth to come follow him. And he invites John to leave fishing to come follow him. He wants to tell, he wants this guy to leave his wealth to come follow him. Because what he knows is that he needs to disconnect this man from his primary loyalty in order to connect him with eternal life. And in this moment, he says, son, I need you to understand this. 
I need you to understand this in this life if you're going to come follow me because one day I'm going to be gone. And the message that I need you to carry on is that God is not about a little routine. It's not about our little routine that if we do these certain things right and we, we, we do the commandments and we, you know, we follow directions perfectly, that then we, we get into heaven and we discover eternal life if we just have our little routine that we do correctly. But rather... It's about a relationship. And and I want you to come follow me and discover what that relationship is. One so filled with love that I know that somewhere in there that you desperately crave. And at this moment, the man learns something very, very valuable about himself. This man learns that his wealth owns him. That he has too much stuff to follow Jesus. Because I don't think that anything competes for our hearts, competes for our love, the same way that the, the pursuit and the management of wealth does. And I know, especially as college students, you're probably sitting out here the, the same way that uh, most college students that I'd have conversations with. We start talking about money because money is presented uh, a whole lot in the Bible. And, and then we start talking about money. Usually the first thing I hear from college students is, well, that doesn't apply to me yet because I don't have money. I'm broke. Exactly. I know you don't have money. I don't have money. We don't have money. Okay. Like I understand that you're in college and this isn't a talk about, Hey, I didn't want you to start giving to the church and, and you need to be, you know, given a certain amount here. Although I do think it's good to start developing habits. You know, even if you're making a hundred dollars a week, uh, uh, you know, starting to develop those habits in college is always healthy because, you know, if it's hard to give, 10 out of $100, you know, it gets much harder when it's 100 out of 1,000 and then 1,000 out of 10,000 and then, whew, you know, those big chunks of money come around and it gets a lot harder. Um, but but back, to, back to the point here is, is for college students, what's, what's maybe the real message here is, is that a lot of you may be in a, in a degree program or, or a major that helps provide some sort of financial security for you. Maybe you're in it. Uh, maybe it's not financial security. Maybe there's another security in there. You know that, hey, my friends will respect me if I do this. Or my family really wants me to do this. We'll have security in some way. And I think it's appropriate here to, to look at the pursuit of wealth while in college. And, uh, and first of all, I want to say, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with, with most of that. I want you to leave this place. My hope is that if you leave college, you go out and become the best, you know, nurse or accountant or, or teacher that you could possibly be. Absolutely. I, I want you to. But there will come a time in your life where you'll be presented with opportunities. You will, you will have God speak into your life and then go, hey, at this point, I, I, I may want you to give some of this to my kingdom, maybe money, maybe time, maybe give up some of the control that we have. And it's these moments where we will either look at him and go, yeah, that may not be exactly the plan that I had, that's a little different than I thought, but okay, I'm on board with that. Or we may hit that point in life and and we may be presented with that truth and we may be presented with this opportunity and go, "Ah, that just doesn't line up with the plans that I had. That doesn't line up with what my family really wants me to do. That doesn't line up with with what my friends are going to respect me for. And so we walk away and we say, no thanks. And that is where we hit the point of no return. 
today, that point where we walk out of this dark room, we walk into the light, and we're presented with this truth, and, and, and that may be at different points in our life, but we're presented with this opportunity, and so often we just want to walk back into the dark, living the way that we had, because it's easier, it's more comfortable, instead of staying out there and letting that light transform us. Now, uh, for me, I've probably, gosh, probably a handful of times in my life, I really feel like I've, I've felt God speak to me in some sort of way, not really with an audible voice, but, you know, just kind of that, that thought that I can't get out of my mind. And usually it has to do with giving for some reason. Usually I'll be sitting somewhere in, in church or in uh, somewhere where an opportunity is presented to give something, and I'm going, oh, no, I know, that, uh-oh, this is God here. You know, and, and I'm like, well, you know, I look at my wallet. I'm like, I got 60 bucks. You know, how much do you want me to give? And if you want to hear God, I mean, just start asking about how much you can give. You know, it's pretty much like an audible voice right there. And usually, you know, I hear God be like, you know what? I want you to give all of it. You got 40 bucks. And I'll be thinking, oh, it's $40. It's not going to do that much. The budget of this thing is like a million dollars. Me giving $40 is not going to do that much. But what God knows in these moments is that it's not about how much money. It's about our hearts. And who's in control? Two summers ago, I had a, an awesome opportunity. I got the chance to go down to Southern Africa, uh, down to Zambia, um, a country down there. And, and I was got to be there for six weeks. And I've actually been there the last two summers. Uh, but this was the first time ever I was over there. And what I was doing was I spent the first three weeks uh, on a short-term mission trip. I was, I was leading a team from the University of Alabama, where I was working before this. And, and we were there three weeks, and then after those three weeks, um, I got a chance to go to a different part of the country and work on a construction project, actually starting the construction of a school that the, the nonprofit I worked with was, was starting to build. And so it was going to be a pretty cool trip. And, and when we got over there, uh, for the first half of the trip with the team, um, we were working in this orphanage, and then we'd go out into these little villages in really remote Africa, and it's, it's what you might picture, being out in these villages, little grass huts, and, and we were out there just kind of sharing uh, with these people, just trying to love them, sharing about who Jesus was, and uh, playing with the kids and stuff like that. And there was this one guy who was a pastor in one of the villages that translated for us the whole time, and his name was Gibson. I actually brought a picture of Gibson with me. This was him driving our truck. He, he, one point he goes, I, somehow he's like, I just want you to take a picture of me sitting in the truck. He didn't actually drive it. He just sat there for the photo. So he was pretty cool, an awesome guy. And uh, we'd always joke around about what kind of animal it would take to beat Gibson in a wrestling match because we knew he'd probably wrestled a lion and won and he probably had wrestled like a cheetah and won. And we figured polar bear was the only animal that he could not beat. Um, but, uh, but Gibson, it, we, just, we just loved him. And one week we got a chance to go to his church where he was the pastor, and it was the coolest church. It was this place that had um, just like this thatch roofing and, and these poles kind of holding it up. Um, go to the next picture. Oh, wait, this was just a random guy. This was one of a 50-cent hat that I thought was hilarious. <laughs> that means nothing. Um, okay, it was like this building in the background, kind of. Uh, it was kind of just the thatch roofing and, and then kind of poles holding it up. Um, some columns, and I thought it was the coolest church ever. But when we started talking with Gibson, it became evident that once the rainy season hit, that people couldn't come to church for about a two- to three-month period because just rain was coming through, it was washing everything out, and the church wasn't very stable. And so he, because we were both kind of construction guys, we were talking about uh, the church he wanted to build, this brick church that was going to be awesome, and he had the land ready for it, and he had uh, members of the church that were going to donate all their time to help out, and it, it was going to be this great building, and all it costed, all it cost was $1,000 to build the whole thing, 
which is incredibly low price for the structure. And, and we got to talking on the second to last day of the trip. I was sitting there talking with Gibson about it, and he was presenting this idea that for $1,000 they could start the construction in a week. And for the rest of my trip, I had three weeks left. And, uh, and I had brought some extra money because we had uh, three more weeks, and I had $1,000 in my pocket. Uh, exactly $1,000, that's how much it costed. And cost, why am I saying costed? It's not a word. <laughs> oh, I'll hear about that one tomorrow. Um, it, it cost $1,000, and, 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 and I really, this is one of those times, probably one of the most audible times in my life that I heard God go, give him $1,000. You can build a whole church right here. We can build this thing. And, and the whole time, I kept thinking, well, what, you know, uh, this is the money for safari. This is the money for bungee jumping. This is the money that in case we get in trouble, I had two other people with me, and I was thinking, oh, I'm gonna, what if I have to get them out of trouble? And I sat there hours. I sat and thought, what, what about all the reasons that I can't give this up? And I walked away. Very clearly, I knew God wanted me to give this money. But it was $1,000. And I couldn't do it. And I walked away, and I missed out on the opportunity of a lifetime. Because I didn't know what was going to happen in the next three weeks. See, the kingdom of God kept going on. That church got built. It got funded. God didn't need me. It was never about that money. But it was about knowing who was in control of my life. as tremendous opportunity for faith and trust that God was going to take care of me. I left those three weeks. I basically had $1,000 left. Believe me, I, those were the, I, pretty tough couple weeks as, as I knew that I walked away from the opportunity that God put right in front of me to build His kingdom and be a part of that. See, it was never about the money. It was what the money represented for me. It made me feel secure. It made me feel confident. It showed me that I was going to be able to have fun if I had this money. I knew if anything went wrong, I'd be able to get out of a jam. And having that money on me required no faith. And for some of us, the pursuit of wealth is the same thing. Just like this man. Just like the man in this story, he was offered the opportunity of a lifetime, the opportunity to follow Jesus. This guy could have been one of the disciples. It could have been, you know, uh, Peter and John and James and, you know, George. And, and uh, we could have, you know, been named after this guy. You know, he had the opportunity of a lifetime to be a part of the kingdom. Jesus didn't welcome everybody to come follow him, but he did welcome this guy. But, but when this bright light shone down on him, he couldn't handle it because it was so different than the life that he had gotten used to living. And so he steps back into the darkness where it's comfortable. See, the truth here is that at the core of this whole thing, that the question is not even about eternal life. The real question here, the real issue The real thing that this is about is that the primary ambition of this man was to stay in control of his life. And his wealth allowed him to stay in control. Isn't that true about money? That sometimes we believe if we have enough of it that we're in control of our life. We can do whatever we want because our wealth will protect us. 
And it keeps us from fully, ju- fully jumping into this relationship with Jesus Christ because relationship is about the giving up of control. Love is about the giving up of control. Love is a tough thing because it requires abandonment of yourself. It requires giving up total control. You can't love someone and be in control of them completely. Loving someone gives them the opportunity to, to bring a lot of joy or a lot of pain to your life. See, when Jesus died on a cross for us, he abandoned the rights that he had as God. He gave up control. He didn't have to do that. But for this relationship, he gave up control for the chance that we would love him back and accept the gift that he gives us. And this young man here is so in control of his life that the thought of giving that up is too much. It's too much. And so he misses out on the opportunity of a lifetime. And my question for you tonight is who owns you? What is it that owns you? Is there something in your life that's too hard to give up? In fact, this is such a big question. I actually want to give us a couple minutes just to kind of sit and reflect on this idea. I'm going to invite um, Brad and, and Annie back up. Um, they're going to play a song for a couple minutes, and, and I'd encourage you just to think about this question. And then I'm going to come back up here, and, and we're just going to close with uh, about two more minutes. But um, I really take a couple minutes just to think about this. Who owns you? All these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he knew his heart. And he knew that this boy was going to turn and walk away. And and he looks at us and he knows. He knows our hearts. He knows we're not always going to choose relationship. We're not always going to choose love. The good news here, you know what the good news is? That Jesus looks at me and He looks at you. And and in the midst of all that, He could not love you more. See, the kingdom of God is going to keep going. It's going to keep going on. And, And when we say no to the things that God has for us, we miss out on the opportunity to, to be a follower and a manager of His kingdom. Rather than letting ourselves be owned by something that can be gone in a moment. Who owns you? God, I, I can't help but look at the ways, God, that... Uh, it's it's difficult at times um, to always follow God, to, to always leave behind uh, the things of our life, God, the things that we have become accustomed to, uh, to follow you. Lord, and I just thank you so much for the way that you look at us and the way that you love us so much. God, no matter what the decision that we make is. Amen.